Let's talk about the real world for a moment, shall we? Where you're not some wonderful lone wolf hero, but you're part of a team and you play your position because that's what America is, Mr. Jeffries. It's one big team. Now, this might be difficult for you to grasp, but I am a patriot. And a patriot is one who makes the right moral choice. Sometimes it takes a strong man to make that choice. All right. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network and also at 21stCenturyWire.com. And uh, before the break, uh, we were talking about, well, as we said, not quite the post-mortem of the 2020 elections, but we have, we're in a very strange place at the moment in the interim. Potentially, we have, well, we have two parallel presidencies right now, one country, two presidents and uh, joining me on the line, of course, Basil Valentine from ACR is joining us now, but also a very special guest from the United States. Uh, he's a professor uh, at uh, New York University, NYU, and uh, he's uh, done extensive work on this very subject that we're discussing today. His name is Mark Crispin Miller, who's joining us on the live link right now. Hello, Mark. Hello, Patrick. Nice to be with you. Virtually. It's great, great to be with you too, Mark. And uh, you know, as we were talking uh, before, there's just there's so many different facets to this situation, and a lot of people are comparing this to Florida in 2000 as as a kind of an example of you know, holding up the result when Florida was, I think, 37 days uh, until it was. Uh, uh, they finally had a resolution of sorts. Of course, not everybody was happy with that resolution. But now we have six, possibly seven states in play. Now, it's difficult to say where this is going to end, Mark. But just, you know, first things first, Mark, when when you were watching this unfold on the evening of November 3rd, were, did you have any familiar thoughts going through your head as this was happening in front of your eyes? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, what's happening now is, on the one hand, uh, more egregious in many ways than what we've seen before. But in a fundamental way, it's, it's uh, as they say, deja vu all over again. I mean, by now, the uh, spectacle of, you know, um, an election that seems to be heading toward a very clear uh, resolution suddenly, late, late at night, uh, turns dramatically, and there's uh, uh, an upset victory. Uh, this happened in uh, 2000, right, Florida. There was a lot of very late-night drama. Uh, Gore had conceded, and then an aide told him that there were, there were really no grounds to concede, and he took his concession back. And then, as you said, for 36 days, he uh, fought it, um, and all the media were uh, urging him to fold. We, you know, we'll get to that, I suppose, momentarily. Four years later, uh, the same thing happened. Uh, all the exit polls said that John Kerry had won. The smart money in Vegas said he was going to win. Uh, Bush had a lot of demerits. Uh, he, he only really had seemed to have strong backing from the Christian right, etc. And then, unaccountably, he, he won in Ohio, where there were myriad anomalies and irregularities, and, and now we know that it was, it was actually stolen. Uh, he folded overnight, 
uh, after having promised that help is on the way, that was the that was the theme of his uh, speech at the Democratic National Convention. And then it happened again four years ago. Uh, people don't seem to appreciate the fact that uh, Trump didn't really expect to win. And, and I believe didn't even want to win. He, he went home early on election night. It was clearly going to be a blowout for Hillary Clinton, despite all her baggage and her really miserable performance as a candidate. Um, she was headed to victory, and the polls were not wrong. And I think that the Trump team's own polls uh, predicted she was going to win. And, and not many people know this. It comes from that guy, Anthony Scaramucci, who was Trump's um, uh, sort of uh, media person for about 10 minutes. He, he tells us that um, they didn't even have an acceptance speech written. You know, I, I think Trump wanted to go home, go to bed, get up early and start his TV network because, you know, he's a flaming narcissist and that was really all he was interested in. Lo and behold, he's president. Uh, so it happened again the other night that Trump is headed toward victory. And then in the dead of night, there are a couple of big vote drops in Wisconsin and Michigan. Uh, in one of them, I think in Michigan, every single vote, it's over 130,000 votes are all for Biden, not one for Trump. Not one for Joe Jorgensen, not one for Brock Pierce, right? Uh, that's what we call an anomaly. And what I want to say specifically about all this is, uh, let me preface it by, by telling or reminding your listeners that I spent years uh, really fighting to put the, the urgent subject of election fraud and, and the dire need to reform the U.S. voting system. Uh, on the national radar screen. Uh, it seemed to me that this was such a serious problem that there had to be a national debate about it. I wrote a book called Fooled Again, which was an analysis of how the 2004 election was stolen. A couple of years later, I edited a book called Loser Take All, which is a collection of essays by various election integrity activists. Uh, I was blacked out by the corporate media. I was called a conspiracy theorist by the left press, interestingly. Uh, but there were a few of us who fought this fight, Bobby Kennedy Jr., Steve Freeman, and others, um, Bob Vitrakis. We tried and tried to get some traction for this all-important subject. The Democrats were completely uninterested. Uh, and as I say, we were called conspiracy theorists. It was the first time I was called that. I've been called that ever since. What's especially troubling to me now, Patrick, is the fact that, that there, there are, well, there are many flagrant signs of theft, okay, in, in, in this election. Signs of theft, I'm saying. I'm not saying I know it was stolen. I'm saying that there are many red flags. And they're exactly the same kind of red flags that went up in um, 2000, that went up in 2004, that went up in 2016 around the Democratic nomination, which was demonstrably stolen from Bernie Sanders. And I believe uh, there's you know, significant red flags uh, from last summer in this Democratic convention battle. I think that Biden's... Uh, uh, capturing the nomination is extremely dubious. 
Um, and here we have them again, and I think we have more of them than we had last time, and I could go through a long list. I, I don't even have an exhaustive list. The evidence keeps pouring in, evidence of all kinds, signs, that is to say, signs of all kinds. But this time, this time, I notice that many of the people in the election integrity movement, my former allies, uh, are poo-pooing any reference to those signs as conspiracy theory which is exactly what the Republicans did in 2004. Now, there was a, out of Ohio, after the 2004 election, the Democrats on the House Judiciary Committee, led by John Conyers, did a report uh, about Ohio. And it's a very detailed, uh, solid piece of research that made quite clear that Ohio had evidently been stolen, that Bush Cheney's victory uh, there, you know, as Ohio goes, so goes the nation, was uh, highly questionable and had to be investigated. The Republicans on the committee boycotted that study, even though they were invited. Uh, and then there was a big discussion of that report in the House. And the it was clearly scripted because every Republican, they were all saying essentially the same things. This is all in the first chapter of my book, Fooled Again. They kept saying it was conspiracy theory, uh, there was nothing to it, Bush won the election fair and square, and this was re-echoed by the corporate media, okay? So the Republican Party and the corporate media, including the so-called liberal media, um, were uh, ignoring the, the, the tons of evidence that, that was adduced by people like me, by the election integrity movement. We were all frustrated. Uh, we were all, you know, tearing our hair out. We just couldn't understand why this was being ignored, you know, so widely. And, and even by the Democrats, okay, they weren't even particularly interested. Uh, well, now the people in that movement, not all of them, but many of them, uh, seem to have devolved into beat Trump operatives. And, and my view is that this fight is, is worth fighting and must be fought, not to benefit either party. I mean, I haven't voted Democratic since 1992. I have no use for that party. I certainly have no use for Donald Trump. But I do believe in honoring the will of the electorate. And the, the red flags in this last election are so many and so obvious and are crying out so loudly for a closer study that I am, I am really uh, appalled to see um, so many people who are happy with the outcome uh, just junking principle here and uh, rolling with it, you know? Uh, and I, I, you know, I, I don't think it's a party matter. I don't think it's ultimately a partisan contest. And I want to add that, that having thought all of this over very carefully all these years, I actually believe that it never was, at least in this millennium, really a party matter, you know? Uh, I think that these decisions are taken at a, a higher level. I mean, nothing else can explain the bizarre acquiescence of the Democrats, you know, the weird, their weird silence on their own defeats, even when they know that those defeats were illegitimate. Uh, the fact that the subject is taboo, you cannot talk about it other than to say that Russia somehow stole the election. That you can say. 
But even even that, you can't say that they rigged the machines. Okay, that's that was never part of the charge. It was that they used Facebook or they flooded the atmosphere with uh, you know pro uh, Trump propaganda. Blah blah blah. But the the reality of election theft through computerized voting and vote counting. That is a forbidden subject, okay? This tells us that it's, it's, it's larger forces at play that both decide the outcome of our elections uh, and that sort of determine how we're allowed to think and talk about um, the need for a, 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 a far stronger and more reliable voting system. Yes, and, and you know, things in 2020 are arguably different. I want to get your comment on this uh, as well, Mark, on, on the political side. In 2020, it's a very different political landscape than in 2000, let's say. There's been a kind of a, a transformation, if you will, uh, whereby the, the Republican Party, at least uh, based on the results of this last election, uh, seemed to be garnering much more support from the working class. Uh, so, right. you know, we're talking about the potential, uh, the danger here, Mark, if if the confidence is lost in the uh, the election systems, you, you, you really have a, a dangerous uh, disconnect here with a large section of the American uh, working class. Uh, and, you know, if you add that with a populist movement, um, you know, that, that could really cause tremors um, or it could it could render democracy as 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 we're used to it anyway in america um kind of like you know useless going forward if if there's not the if the confidence isn't there in the system i i don't know i'm i'm very worried about this impasse right now mark i want to get your thoughts on the the political ramifications of it oh that, yeah that's a very important um aspect of this whole discussion and, you know the republicans uh, routinely stole elections for years especially uh, after uh, Reagan, you know, who, who was fairly popular, not as popular as, as the media said, but, but popular. Um, after that, the party was basically hijacked by the Christian right uh, for its own purposes. It was still serving Wall Street and corporate interests. I mean, that's always been the function of both parties. But the Republicans um, did have a kind of grassroots support of, of uh, the theocratic Christianists, and they had a tremendous amount of power there. And so their their agenda was unpopular. They therefore had to steal elections. I mean, they didn't do it just out of, you know, demonic malice. They did it out of necessity. They had to uh, shrink the pool of eligible voters through vote suppression. That's step one. And then they had to take step two, which is to fiddle with the, the vote count on election day through electronic means. So they did that. Well, this has changed somewhat in that uh, the Democratic Party is now the party that is promoting an unpopular agenda. The Democratic Party is the party of lockdown. The Democratic Party is the party of censorship. The Democratic Party is now the party of war. Not that the Republicans don't support war as well, but the Democrats have backed into the position of the uh, far right in the 50s, demonizing Russia, you know, Russia, 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 this obsession with Putin, uh, this, this notion that he's somehow Stalin 2.0 and he's trying to take over the world. This is, this is demented. 
there was nothing to Russiagate. It ultimately collapsed, but they never gave it up. Uh, so they're the party of, of war. And they are, in fact, a party that detests the working class, right? Now, they fetishize race. So they, they will talk about, uh, you know, uh, disadvantaged black people and so on. But overall, the working class, in as much as it is, in fact, a class of many races, uh, they have no use for them. They have contempt for them. They think that they're stupid. They think that they're deplorables. And all those people know that because the Democrats make no secret of it. On top of which, they are also the party of uh, gender identity, which makes them, in effect, uh, misogynistic. It makes them anti-feminist because they're perfectly fine with, uh, for example, biological males com competing in girls' and women's sports. They don't seem to have a problem with radical medical intervention in the sexual development of children. Now, however one feels about those issues, we can all agree that they're not they're not popular. It's not a popular position. Uh, that is a kind of a, an eccentric position and peculiar to, you know, blue enclaves. So what I'm saying is the Democratic Party is now the party that's pushing an unpopular agenda. Trump, uh, who I think is a phony, has successfully appealed to the uh, working class and to his populist base by speaking to those people's concerns. And, and they're, they're not just racists. I mean, he has some black support. Uh, he has a lot of Hispanic support. Uh, this notion that everybody who, who has voted for him is some kind of Nazi is just a propaganda meme. Uh, so, the, yeah, the Democrats now have had to steal. Uh, I'm assuming that those signs we're seeing from the other night, uh, uh, where there's smoke, there's fire. Uh, so it's not a stretch of the imagination to say that they would resort to theft in order to uh, realize their agenda, which, again, I want to stress, I don't think it's their agenda. You know, I think the Great Reset is in the works, this radical elite uh, program to completely remake global society and, and the economy. So, so the Democrats are, are being used to front for this. I, I think that if Trump were president, it would happen anyway. I don't think he has the power uh, or even necessarily the desire to resist it. Uh, but it might be uh, slowed down a little bit if his, if his constituency had a voice in the executive branch, you know? Mm -hmm. So as to the question of, um, you know, public confidence in the, in, the, in the viability of electoral democracy here, I think that, uh, to coin a phrase, our chickens are now coming home to roost. I think that the system uh, really uh, lost all legitimacy some time ago. I, I, I've, I've said before, and I'll say again, I think that 2020 has been on its way since 1963, which was a bloody coup, you know, affected in broad daylight in the streets of Dallas. And this was pulled off in order to ensure that a very popular president who would be running on a kind of peace agenda, uh, had successfully pushed for the passage of the partial nuclear test ban treaty and wanted uh, to c come to terms with the Soviet Union and quietly was planning to pull out of Vietnam. 
the Joint Chiefs didn't want that. The military-industrial complex didn't want that. Wall Street didn't want uh, uh, Kennedy's kind of economic program. Uh, the eugenicists like the Rockefellers and so on, uh, the population control movement, as, as it called itself, and still does, uh, they had a kind of adversary in the White House, uh, as well as in Bobby Kennedy. So that, that wasn't going to be allowed to take place. And it's interesting to note, let me add, that the first election in which votes were counted uh, uh, by computer, not all votes, but many votes were counted by computer, was in 1964. Uh, I, I think that, uh, you know, that innovation and, and uh, the 25th Amendment, which was passed after the assassination, to enable uh, the vice president to take the president's position should the president be deemed unfit, uh, these were ways to make sure that demo the democratic system would never miscarry again, you know, would never again, uh, you know, um, bring in a president who would stand in the way of the war machine. Um, you know, and, and there were some subsequent uh, uh, glitches, you know, I think there's evidence that Watergate was actually a silent coup. There are several very compelling books that make that case, uh, because of Jay Pont, uh, because of Nixon's overture to China, because of his uh, animus against the CIA, you know, for his own reasons. Um, but, you know, thereafter, I, I think that all our presidents have basically been safe bets, you know, so that we have really, over the decades, witnessed the, you know, complete capture of the election system. And, and it's now... Uh, sort of total. The media now is completely unified, uh, you know, dominated by five multinational corporations that are very close to the government. The social media giants are also very close to the highest powers. Uh, so, you know, what you describe as a kind of disconnect, uh, you know, um, is a necessity in a way, because you've got you got the majority of people on the one hand who are, you know, rightly concerned about their survival and want to live decent human lives. They want to have families. They want to have jobs. They want to have intact communities. And then you've got all these powerful corporate and other elite interests, on the other hand, uh, which collectively have other plans for the rest of us. I, you know, I... I, I I think that, you know, Trump will put up a fight. There will be a legal uh, challenge. I, I, I believe they have some grounds. I mean, I, it, it's, it's interesting to, you know, study this uh, uh, phase of the uh, narrative, but I think that in the long run, uh, the outcome is assured, and um, we have to be thinking ahead, uh, you know, if we want to... Um, ever get back to something like democracy, uh, a real democracy, as opposed to a mobocracy, you know, with elite um, uh, puppet masters. So, um, you know, I'm just saying again what I've said for 20 years, which is that um, legitimate elections are crucial, uh, even though the two parties are you know, the two wings on a single bird of prey, as Upton Sinclair once put it, 
uh, within the Democratic Party and even within the Republican Party, there have been some congressional candidates who are really honest and want to do the right thing. They're all uh, driven out by the corruption of the voting system. Cynthia McKinney in Georgia, Dennis Kucinich in Ohio, uh, you know, they, they are um, uh, quote unquote defeated in their reelection bids. And um, this is because the election system has been completely gamed, you know, needs to be reformed radically, which is something that we could do very simply, you know, I could get into that. It wouldn't be hard at all to return us to something like a reliable voting system, but neither party wants it. The press is uninterested in it. Uh, Liberals don't care about it, neither do progressives. They actually never have. So the question is, uh, how do we do it? And is, is it possible? And if so, uh, how can it be done? Well, you, you're probably familiar with uh, Tulsi Gabbard uh, tabled, uh, I believe, a bill uh, just along these very lines. I don't know if you're familiar with the details of, of what she's proposing, but uh, she pushed that out during the uh, debates, I believe, and absolutely a wall of silence fell. I mean, it was as if, <laughs> it was as if she said, said some blasphemy or something. Um, oh, that's, that's absolutely right. That's what happened when she brought it up. That's what always happens. Well, listen, let me ask you. I mean, I was a staunch Bernie supporter twice. Where where was he? You know, why didn't he utter a peep after the manifest theft of his, uh, his nomination? I mean, uh, as for the one four years ago, there there's a long, detailed study called Democracy Lost by a group called Election Justice USA. I think it's 108 pages. They go chapter and verse, state after state, caucus, uh, well, not caucuses then, there's caucuses this year, primary after primary. Uh, it was clearly stolen. Um, the vote suppression clearly carried out by the Democrats. And, and electronic fraud probably uh, pulled off by Republican operatives. If we're going to talk about this as a partisan drama, it would be because they didn't want you know, uh, Trump to be running against Bernie. But my question is, why has Bernie been silent? And well, why I, did he then... What's that? Oh, no, go ahead. Finish, Mark. Will you Finish your sentence. Yeah, uh, he's, been, he's been completely silent, uh, which is a, a betrayal of his, of his supporters. I mean, it, the significant thing isn't that he was robbed. The significant thing is that all the people who voted for him were robbed. Uh, many, many... Uh, he had more young supporters than any other candidate. This is the first time they got politically engaged. He, he screwed them. He just kept his mouth shut. I have nothing but contempt for that. Now, who has spoken up? What presidential candidate has spoken up about election theft? It was Jill Stein, right? Jill Stein, who's not a Democrat, but a Green, um, and, and against the wishes even of many people in her own party, uh, made a big issue out of the swing state votes in 2016 and bravely and successfully mounted a, a fundraising drive to pay the obscene amounts of money it costs to, to get um, recounts going in those three states. And she unearthed a lot of really significant evidence uh, that nobody has talked about. It's been reported by no media outlet anywhere. She has taken in, immense amounts of abuse. Uh, you know, I think her life has been threatened. Uh, she was accused of being a Russian troll and all this stuff uh, just for 
trying to get at some truth about what happened in that election. Not for her own sake. She didn't have a prayer of being, uh, you know, uh, a contender politically, but because she believes in that crucial principle of fair elections, you know, that the outcomes of our elections should reflect the will of the electorate, you know, um, that's fundamental, it's inarguable, and yet so few people seem to believe in it. Uh, Barbara Lee, God bless her, Representative Barbara Lee, uh, tweeted out a photo of a theater marquee in, um, I think it's in uh, Santa Monica, saying that every vote must be counted. Uh, she tweeted a photo of that with a, with a meme of a, a thumbs up, you know. Um, that's, that's a real patriot, okay? That's, that's a real American uh, in the best sense. Somebody who believes in that, believes in a democratic republic. Uh, the attack on, on, on election integrity, or I should say the, the um, subversion of election integrity, uh, the use of that movement to promote the agenda of one side is, is a, a great uh, moral collapse and, and a sign that things have really gone very, very wrong, just like the transformation of the Democratic Party uh, into a war party. Uh, into an anti-working class party, you know, uh, uh, into a into a lockdown party, uh, into a mandatory vaccination party. Uh, I think there's an American majority that, that, that not only doesn't want that, but that will resist it. And I'm afraid we're heading toward that uh, that that moment. Uh, you know, I don't know what to say beyond that. Well, the, uh, the the count every vote, I noticed that was a big, they're really pushing that talking point. Nancy Pelosi, Joe Biden, uh, Kamala Harris, uh, this was on the eve of the election. And then the day after, it was, you know, we need to count every vote. They tweeted it, those very words. That was on message. And then all of a sudden they rushed. They rushed the day after, rushing to, uh, you know, after NBC and the AP declared Biden to be the winner. Now they're saying, don't count every vote. Meanwhile, they're still no, counting. Right, you know. No, I know. Oceania has always been at war with East Asia, right? Remember yeah. that? From that? It's the same thing. You know, the, the propaganda line shifts. I, I think Basil wanted to uh, say something. Yeah. Yes, thanks. I, I just wanted to say, uh, I thought it was very interesting, the point you made about uh, election theft slash vote fraud being beyond the part over and above the party level. Um, right. And I wonder if you agree with me whether or not the unseen hand, um, the deep state, although I don't think that term has quite the same resonance now as it did when Peter Dale Scott first coined it 20 years ago, but whether right. or not it's the same hidden hand that um, put Bush in power in 2000 and particularly in 2004 is now working for Biden in 2020. The same neocon hand, the same national security state, who the individuals are, how the organization works, I, I, I don't know. But uh, that would back up my thesis, which is that the parties themselves are merely empty vehicles that are periodically resprayed and presented to the electorate as new by shoddy second-hand car salesmen, uh, when in fact the, the buyer, the 
electorate have no idea what's under the hood or in which direction it's going to be going. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I think that's absolutely true. It, it's important to note that, well, first of all, you know, the neocons are a faction of, of the Republican Party. It, it, they also include some Democrats. Um, I, I think it's, it, it does include that faction, and, and yet it's also even bigger than that. I mean, we're talking about the same war machine that whacked JFK. Um, right. You know, it, 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 it's, it's, uh, they don't want that business ever to be interrupted. Uh, but, you know, there's right. also uh, a kind of uh, uh, a long-standing elite program of, of uh, depopulation, of total control of, of, of humanity and, and the food supply, stuff that, you know, people will laugh off as conspiracy theory. But l- let me say something about that. You know, that phrase, that weaponized phrase, uh, was birthed by the CIA in 1967. Uh, the reason why we've all internalized it is that, that starting in 1967, that phrase began to be used um, back then to discredit critics of the Warren Report. And, and this is all laid out in a memo that the CIA sent its station chiefs worldwide, memo 1035960, which basically instructed all those personnel worldwide to use their media assets to discredit the work of these um, conspiracy theorists, which is a phrase that actually had never been used before, and and, and it recommended certain you know sort of um, uh, facile pseudo arguments that that reviewers could use in their attacks on people like Mark Lane and others who were rightly questioning the Warren report, which was kind of a joke. Well, that phrase never stopped being used. It was used after King's assassination, after Bobby's. It was used after the October Surprise in 1980, after Enron-Contra, after 9-11. And now it's used all the time by pretty much everybody. I mean, it's become far more uh, widely used and, and ferociously used than ever before. And fake news is kind of um, offshoot of conspiracy theory. Well, what I'm saying is, that the uh, CIA's involvement in election theft uh, was prodigious uh, all along for decades, from the beginning. The Pike Committee, you know, there were two congressional investigations of the CIA in the mid-70s. There's the Church Committee, which everybody's heard of. That was in the Senate. In the House was the Pike Committee, which is not as well known. Uh, uh, Pike Committee's relationship with the CIA was much rockier than the relationship that the church committee had with the agency. They were more combative. They wanted more stuff that the agency wasn't willing to give them. So they were stonewalled. Uh, you know, they were thwarted. And the first third of their eventual report is all about the difficulty they had even getting information out of the CIA. As soon as that report was completed, the House amazingly classified it so that uh, some big chunks of it ended up running in the village voice. And this led to, you know, um, uh, high-level uh, investigations, and it's too complicated to go into. You could only get a copy, and still can only get a copy from the UK. Uh, it's a paperback edition with an introduction by Philip Agee. I bring it up because this little study uh, makes clear that the CIA's involvement in 
what they call election work, uh, by the mid-70s accounted for roughly a third of what the CIA was doing worldwide. Another third was propaganda. Okay, we know they do a tremendous amount of that. But election work, that means stealing elections all over the world. You know, that's, that's one of the first things they, they, they did. It wasn't an outright theft exactly, but in Italy in 1948, you know, one year after the CIA was formed, uh, they swung into action to make sure that the communists were defeated in the Italian elections. And they used every propaganda means at their disposal. They used some, uh, you know, um, some bully boy tactics uh, at the street level. But they got their wish. They got what they wanted. And then from then on, they've been interfering in elections, you know, serially everywhere. And so I have a feeling that the reason why the subject is taboo, you know, the reason why you're pilloried and ridiculed even for bringing it up is that it's one of those things that might, you know, you follow those breadcrumbs, they might lead back to the intelligence services. So, um, you know, I do think, that, and the CIA, let me add, is, is, is to some extent a rogue organization, but it's, a, it's basically a, a middleman. It's an instrument. Of, of much larger interests. You know, Philip Agee called it the, the secret police of American capitalism, you know. Uh, so um, when, when you see the entire establishment uh, turning on a candidate uh, and supporting his opponent, all the media, you know, even Fox News now, has turned against uh, Trump. Uh, the entire Democratic Party, many in the Republican Party, um, it's, it's clear that, that this is not just a party matter, you know. The party conflict is just a sideshow that helps to keep us distracted from, you know, the war on us that's being waged from uh, a level far higher than where the parties operate, you know. It... it it's a yeah. war that, that keeps, yeah. and, and it's essential to keep us not only distracted, but divided. So we're all at each other's throats. And it's red versus blue, it's black versus white, etc. You know, um, it's the oldest imperial game in the book. Uh, and they're playing it very skillfully, you know. So yeah. um, what can one say? Well, those divisions as well seem to be sort of deeper and nastier in 2020 than ever before. As you say, the two parties are two wings of the same bird of prey. But uh, as we mentioned in the first hour, um, Democrats and MSNBC anchors now are talking about eradicating the Trumpian Republican Party and its supporters. There's, there's a vitriol in American political discourse that wasn't there 50 years ago? Or am I remembering the 70s and 80s as halcyon days that never were? Well, they weren't halcyon days, but there was nothing like this. I mean, this, this is really, right. um, this, is, this feels totalitarian. You know, this is a kind of, it, it reminds me of Gleichschaltung, the, the, the German word for it. It's kind of like streamlining. It's what the Nazis did, you know, when they just took over all major cultural and political institutions by staffing them with their own people, you know. 
And I mean, I'm, I'm under fire at NYU. Uh, we don't have to get into this, but you know, it's basically for failing to uh, adhere to the uh, COVID orthodoxy. And also lately it's, you know, for various imagined uh, crimes against uh, social justice, you know? So, so that, um, the social justice aspect of this uh, uh, whole struggle is, is crucial because that's what enables the depiction of all Trump supporters as white supremacists, you know. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very crude and very dangerous, uh, and, and it's yeah. all about censorship, deplatforming, firing. Yeah. Uh, so I speak to you as somebody who's himself a victim of this. But, uh, yeah, Basil, you're absolutely right. This, this, is, this is a new thing, you know. And it's it's it is as new as the Democratic Party's transformation and, into a really kind of frightening uh, uh, totalitarian uh, alliance or front. Uh, I don't recognize it. I, I did a, a Instagram conversation with Bobby Kennedy Jr. a few weeks ago, and we agreed we don't recognize this Democratic Party. You know, I, I think it's time for us to drop the whole left-right division. Left means nothing anymore. It's not about being against Absolutely. war. It's not about curbing corporate power. It's not about uh, you know uh, strengthening the working class. It's not even really about protecting the environment. You know, I don't care how much they scream about climate change. It's it's um, it's about something else. And uh, the right. Well, what does that mean? If it means uh, the Christianist right, the theocrats. Well, that's you know something we should worry about. Does it mean the the sort of neo-Nazi right? Uh, the, you know the the um, the Proud Boys, uh, if I'm you know describing them accurately, that's problematic too. But does it mean the libertarian right? Does it mean people who believe in freedom? Well, it seems to. You know, when 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 the Democrats uh, pillory people who talk about freedom uh, and lump them in together with Nazis who don't believe in freedom. <laughs> You know, um, we're, we're talking it's about. It's all about it's, it's, yes, no, sorry, me. go on. Finish. I'm just saying that the nomenclature has all become completely ridiculous. It's, you know, it's exactly. all utterly, utterly meaningless. You know. right. I mean, in exactly. Britain, with, with respect to the lockdown, um, obviously we have a, a right wing government headed by Boris Johnson, um, and yet people protesting against the lockdown are dubbed neo-fascists. Yeah, right. I, it makes no sense. Well, I mean, look, it's a double standard. You know, I, I see the whole post-George Floyd moment as uh, the second act of the horrendous 2020 melodrama, you know, which is meant to, to kind of break uh, the nations of the world and subjugate humanity, Right. Uh, certainly yeah. in the United States, that's the program. So COVID was act one, the COVID crisis uh, at its height was, you know, act one. And that dealt a body blow to the independent American economy, you know, the mom and pop stores and so on, independent businesses. Then the George Floyd uh, uh, protests uh, affected the second step of that, you know. And interestingly, we, we talked a moment ago briefly about the kind of flexibility of the propaganda mind that you shift from wanting to count every vote to not wanting to count every vote. 
Well, all of a sudden, you know, after, uh, you know, months of being told that any congregation was extremely dangerous and would kill grandma, you got all these BLM uh, uh, assemblies, and somehow they're not dangerous, you know. They got a pass. It's like those people don't catch COVID and they don't transmit it. And they weren't all wearing masks, not that those work, right? Uh, so um, that was, you know, a clear sign that the social justice propaganda is a key part of this whole thing, because while those protests were perfectly okay, um, protests against the lockdowns were all dismissed as Nazi uh, um, uh, gatherings, right? And then, you know, there were a few very high-profile shows of force by white supremacists. There was one in, in Lansing, Michigan, around the time of a, of a larger protest against Governor Whitmer's really draconian lockdown policy. There was this apparent uh, storming of the state house in Lansing by these armed white supremacists that I think was just a, a bunch of bull. I mean, I think it was staged. I don't believe it. Just as this kidnapping plot, these white supremacists were gonna kidnap the governor. This was, you know, more recent. Well, it turns out that was just another instance of an FBI infiltrator manipulating some bunch of dim bulbs into thinking they were going to kidnap the governor. But it got <laughs> enormous amounts of publicity. Okay, when Bobby Kennedy spoke in Berlin, gave that amazing speech, what, about a month or so ago, over a million people. Uh, all the media were, you know, uh, predicting it would be a, a Nazi uh, uh, gathering. It was nothing of the kind. But around the same time, a bunch of neo-Nazis stormed the Reichstag. This got tremendous play, okay? If people can't see that, that these are propaganda exercises, um, it seems to me that there's, either there's no hope for them or they just have a lot to learn. This, is, this kind of uh, spectacle is straight out of the playbook, you know? It's, it's, it's been used all over the place for decades. It's, it's a key ingredient of, of the color revolution. Um, and it's going on now. Uh, so, you know, by now, I take it as axiomatic that if all the media is reporting something, uh, it's probably false, you know? And it was probably, um, in yeah. many cases, something that was orchestrated. But I, I, I wouldn't believe it, you know? It's, it's that bad. It is really that bad. No, yeah, I, just, I mean, I know... Go on, Patrick. Yeah, you go on, Patrick. No, I'm just going to add, Mark. Um, yeah, the, uh, the the Proud Boys. Just on that on that front, that started out as kind of a uh, an inter a social media mem. Uh, Gavin McGinnis, uh, formerly of Vice magazine, oh, yeah. he's right. Canadian actually, but decamped in New York, and he was sort of you know running that as a kind of a, a counter against the kind of social justice uh, triggered left. It was to you know antagonize the university. Uh, uh, you know, triggered left and whatnot. And it, 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 the media built it up, CNN, NBC, they, they built it up into the, it to like it's hell's angels basically. And it, no, and, absolutely. and, and, uh, but they, they created a, that with the, the spectacle of Charlottesville, which had FBI informants active in the upper echelons of the so-called, you know, right wing there. Uh, one of them was outed, uh, in a radio host who was uh, doing provocative stuff as well. He was an FBI informant. I mean, the place was just, you know, swarming with various bad actors, basically. And oh, uh, Yeah, but go ahead. Well, I was going to say that, you know, that kind of thing, 
there was a black guy, I forget his name, he's a conservative and he does his own podcast. Um, Anthony and, Logan, I think. That's right, it was Anthony Logan and he interviewed a woman who had been in a restaurant um, in Charlottesville just before the, um, the, uh, the clash commenced and she... He was interviewing her, and she sounded wholly credible. She was completely traumatized. She kept breaking down into tears. She said that, you know, several buses pulled up and parked in this alley uh, next to the restaurant. And all these um, demonstrators, uh, so-called, from either side poured into the place and started, you know, beating the crap out of people. It was like they were getting warmed up, but they weren't just one side or the other, you know, they were BL, they were wearing BLM t-shirts and some were wearing, um, you know, uh, clan regalia or whatever it was. And it was kind of surreal and, and nightmarish. Everybody had to flee out the rear of the place. Some people got beat up, but this, you know, when I heard this, it immediately reminded me of, of what I had learned not long before from a documentary on the CIA coup in Iran, 1953, the first of their successful destabilization efforts. Um, there's a guy being interviewed uh, talking about street fights in, in Tehran between communists and anti-communists, right? Both sides were just gangsters, uh, basically paid by the coup masters. They weren't communists or anti-communists. They were thugs, and they were crisis actors, basically. So they staged a pitched battle, and it was reported as this, uh, you know, melee suggesting a kind of breakdown of, of political order, which eased the ouster of Mohammed Mossadegh, you know, the democratically elected prime minister who wanted to nationalize um, British oil. Well, he couldn't do that. So they, they swung into action, the CIA and the, and, uh, and the British, and they, they did it, and they used that kind of trick. And that's what Charlottesville reminded me of, you know. Um, yeah, that, that's what we're living through. Um, yeah, the last note on, on Charlottesville, and the reason I, I mentioned Charlottesville, because that Joe Biden launched his campaign, his presidential campaign, on the back of Charlottesville. That was his big sort of coming out, uh, you know, speech. And he said, uh, I'm, I'm fighting for the soul of the nation. When I saw the tiki torches, the Walmart $7 tiki torches at Charlottesville, uh, it moved me to run for president and so forth. But J James Field is the, uh, the, I think it was 19 or 20-year-old young guy who was convicted, got two life sentences, I think, uh, for killing, uh, running his car into uh, and killing a, a, an activist. He, we find out after the trial that he had a multiple, diagnosed multiple personality schizophrenia from the age of eight. Was oh, it no uh, ab abuse, all sorts of things, and parents were, you know, in and out of whatever. And, you know, you look at the MO, the background of this kid, and then he was dropped into this, you know, neo-Nazi group uh, with, you know, posed in a few photos on social media. And and really the whole story was built around, but nobody asked this question while he was being, I mean, his, he's really messed up, you know, mentally. And normally that would come out in the trial, but it, it, it almost wasn't mentioned in the press until months and months later during the sentencing. Uh, oh, I never heard that. Yeah, it's a fascinating story. If you, if you have an opportunity, I will drop a link, hopefully, if I can remember, uh, to you after the show. But I, I find the whole thing just 
really fascinating. The deeper I go into that event, the more interesting it gets. Well, you know, that's right. And and I want to say as well that, that um, you know, we would be in much better shape as a society and as a, a nation if uh, people understood how propaganda works, you know. I used to say this about media studies. I used to say that, you know, media studies should be taught uh, a mandatory part of every high school and college curriculum so people know how the media works, you know, how ownership works, how advertiser dollars affect content. And I still believe that. But that's related to, uh, that's a part of a larger uh, necessity, which is the need to grasp how propaganda operates. Uh, that's really important. And in line with that, and this, this is based on what you just said, in line with that is, is the need for us to study the darker side of our own history, okay? And by that, I don't just mean slavery, which we do now study and which we should study. I'm talking about post-war history. I'm talking about, you know, the intelligence colossus. I'm talking about um, all the stuff that's dismissed as conspiracy theory. MK Ultra is a program that's highly relevant to what you just noted about James Field. You know, the the um, use, if not the creation, of uh, damaged persons uh, who can then be shuffled around and used as pawns in these in these theatrical exercises. You know, uh, I mean, it turns out well. We, this is a subject we could talk about for a whole separate hour, but the point is. I find that, that the ignorance of the CIA's past and, and, and the FBI's and so on is um, uh, rampant. You know, it's every, nobody knows uh, anything about any of this stuff. There was this brief golden moment in the 70s when it all began to come to light, just a piece of it, but it was really coming to light uh, because of those congressional inquiries. Um, you know, because of Watergate, uh, because the Vietnam War had gone so badly awry, uh, the American people were kind of ready for some truth, you know? That's when we had these amazing movies come out of Hollywood, uh, like Godfather Two in Chinatown. These are big budget productions, and they actually shed an honest light on the nature of American power, you know? Uh, well, you know, the CIA swung into action and, and made sure that that moment ended soon. And, and the guy who took over the agency to steer it through that crisis was George Bush Sr., you know. It was his one year as, as CIA director that, that basically handed him that assignment. You know, he dealt with the church committee and so on. He made sure they said very little about CIA involvement in the media. He made sure they said nothing about CIA involvement in academia, which was extensive and still is. But nobody knows about any of it. Um, so there's been a kind of long uh, winter of mass ignorance of of that crucial history, uh, and and it's not bliss, right? If ignorance is bliss, you know, why are so many people taking drugs? You know. Yeah, if I could uh, just. Uh Jump in one last time. Here in the UK, of course, our BBC has devolved, degenerated into a propaganda organization. And I think it's fair to say that in the United States, even 25 or 30 years ago, you had greater plurality of media opinion and, uh, uh, you know, a more 
interested media in the subjects um, yes. that have now become unmentionable, you know, but also the, the total failure of academia, but with the exception of your good self, um, where are American universities uh, with respect to JFK, 9-11, the Church Committee, any of it, MKUltra, any of they're nowhere to be seen, you know. Well, I'm afraid uh, that I, I can't argue questions. Do you know what I mean? Be, oh, you talk about that, we cut off your funding, blah, blah, blah. But what happened to tenure? You know. Um, well, you're no kidding. I mean, I have tenure. I've been teaching at NYU since 1997. And a, a lot of my colleagues want me fired, you know, um, for heresy, I suppose. And it, it has to do really with what we're talking about. It, it, it's, it's not just what I said about masks, you know, or the reading that I assigned about masks, which is what uh, moved some student to flip out on me, took to Twitter and demanded I be fired, you know, for assigning, not even assigning, and, and recommending that the class reads scientific studies on the effectiveness of masks. Uh, mm -hmm. Studies pro and con, you know, both. Uh, she was so angered, she, she took to Twitter and said I should be fired. And NYU basically took her side, okay? Yeah, tenure. Tenure is there in order to protect those who go against the grain, you know, who venture unpopular, unorthodox uh, views and do research that would put certain, you know, um, official narratives into question. You know, I, I believe it became important in the first place, you know, uh, because of the uh, hostility to pacifism in World War One. I. I may be misremembering this, but, but the point is it was based on an enlightened understanding of the need to protect independent intellectual inquiry from state and, and, and corporate pressure, right? So I, yeah. I'm afraid that most of the people who have it now uh, don't have any need for it. Because they're they're not their work doesn't put them at any risk, you know, and and yeah. you know, you're, Basil, you've brought up a crucial um, aspect of this whole problem, you know, how how this happened, how funding streams came to determine the kind of work people do, the the subjects that cannot be discussed by academics because no one will fund them. There's no work on Fukushima, you know, for example, a subject that never comes up in the media while that site continues to irradiate the Pacific Ocean with catastrophic consequences for marine life and human life as far to the, to the, to the um, east as, as the west coast of the United States and Canada, um, never, never gets discussed and nobody can get any grant money to study it. Well, you know, that's, that's really um, beyond worrisome. But, you know, what it means is that the entire field of intellectual endeavor has become uh, corrupted and it, you know, requires tremendous amounts of personal courage and, you know, uh, resourcefulness in order to even do work that needs to be done, you know? Yeah. Completely no, neutered. Neutered. Yeah, it's a better word. <laughs> well, that, no, that's... Uh... Yeah, that's uh, you know, uh, Piers Robinson. Uh, he's in the uh, their Institute for Propaganda Studies. I'm sure they've done a lot in that department. And like you said, yeah, Mark, I'm, it, I'm on the board of that. Uh, yes, exactly. 
So there, there are there are some good you know, academics, you know, really uh, trying to hold the line on on that issue. But as you said, Mark, the most important aspect is that if you if you're not taking that into account when you're looking at any particular event or any situation politically or geopolitically, um, if you're not taking the propaganda side into consideration, then you, you it's very likely that you will not really know what you're looking at. That's exactly right. You put that very well. You don't know what you're looking at. My 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 impulse is always to say you don't know what you're talking about, right? People uh, argue on the basis of um, nothing, but you don't know what you're looking at is is it even even more apt, you know, because we're all looking at the same thing. But uh, all too many people see what they're intended to see. Um, and it is, you know, what's happened to the BBC has happened to the entire American media, including the left press. You know, I don't see any difference between democracy now and the New York Times. I don't. I don't even see any difference between Noam Chomsky and, and uh, Thomas Friedman. You know, I mean, they've all kind of uh, blended into one another. Uh, it's, it's really uh, something, you know. All, all the biggest stars on the left are... Um, pro-lockdown, you know. Uh, they won't talk about the Great Reset. Uh, Naomi Klein, uh, Amy Goodman, Noam Chomsky. Um, you know, I could go on naming these. And I know them all, you know. Um, I mean, I, I have uh, appeared with them. I've talked to them. I've worked with them. But the left that was uh, is just not the left that is. And Possibly it never was what it seemed to be in some cases. Um, who will know, right? But um, the fact is, as Basil notes, we, we got to drop the nomenclature. It's a waste of time. It's a distraction. There are those of us who believe in freedom and truth. I know that sounds corny. Uh, and yeah. who are genuine patriots and want the best for people. And there are those who don't. Yeah. You know, they may think they do because they're terrified but when you're terrified, uh, it brings out the worst in you, you know. Uh, and we're seeing yeah. the worst come out in a lot of people now. I mean, the absolute worst. Yeah, and, 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 and the last thing oh. I'll say is we're going to wrap up in a minute. But, you know, going back to the Bernie Sanders uh, issue, Mark, uh, you know, I was excited to, you know, the race I wanted to see was, was Trump-Sanders because although I'm not uh, a proponent of of all of Bernie's uh, policies, I thought that having that clash would be tremendous uh, in terms of political discourse, in terms of engaging people, and really coming to practical solutions through that process, and uh, and really seeing whether you know having this generation you know come up uh, and really challenging a lot of uh, state ideas uh, within the establishment that have you know been there for, for decades and decades. I thought this was a great opportunity. It could be a great moment in history uh, to, to have opposition and to have counter, counterpoints. It didn't happen. It didn't oh, happen. You're so, you're so right. You know, that was, that was the contest that Gore Vidal used to say we really very badly needed. He used to say we need to have an election uh, in which, uh, you know, someone uh, on the sort of democratic socialist left squares off against some free market uh, uh, buccaneer, you know, that, that those two yeah. antithetical notions uh, should should have it out. That would have happened. 
uh, Bernie versus Trump. But, you know, obviously that wasn't in the cards, you know? So we got what we got, which was, uh, you know, Tweedledum and Tweedledummer. And um, not much difference between them, other than the fact that Trump um, at least feigned opposition to lockdown and feigned uh, an unwillingness to uh, launch mandatory vaccination. Uh, As I say, I don't trust him. But his constituents uh, include people who are genuinely libertarian. And so um, that's the key difference between the two sides. Otherwise, I think that they're, well, I actually think Biden's worse, to tell you the truth, because Trump at least hasn't started any new wars or has not fronted for any new wars. I think the ones that were ongoing, he may have ramped up. So I'm not about to give him the Nobel Peace Prize or anything. He also ramped up uh, Obama's drone war, I've, I've uh, read. But he didn't start any new ones. Uh, whereas a Biden-Harris-Clinton uh, regime will definitely uh, you know, get that war machine back in business again. And that will happen you know, in conjunction with COVID panic and climate change and uh, social justice and all sorts of new and... Uh, newly horrible ways, I, I expect, you know. Uh, if you look at the Great Reset, the Great Reset uh, agenda from Davos, from the World Economic Forum, that's what you just said there, Mark, is chapter and verse of this kind of the agenda that they have. Social justice is it features majorly. Of course, the climate change issue is, is baked in there. And, and lockdown, pandemic, COVID, and you know, international uh, biosurveillance and uh, lower economic uh, activity, uh, transitioning away from a carbon economy and all these things. Um, that's that's pretty much the Biden-Harris uh, platform, I, I think, looks very much uh, uh, Gleichschalten with, <laughs> with Davos, as you said. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's right. You know, so, people do you so- think last one last question, Mark. Do you think Trump stands any chance at all of overturning the result in the courts? Well, it, it, it is possible that he'll get um, a legal decision in his favor. Uh, you know, um, the Supreme Court is, is you know, definitely uh, uh, packed with uh, people who would back him, I think. Um I'm, I'm being very tentative here because who, who knows? But but uh, but I don't think that yeah. that will ultimately make any difference. You know, I think that yeah. we've already been uh, warned uh, repeatedly or alerted to the likelihood, if not the inevitability, of some kind of military intervention and mass, uh, you know, color revolution type uh, street chaos around the White House. You know, I can easily picture that. I don't think it's even uh, speculation. I think it's fact. So w- what what will ultimately happen will be the imposition of something uh, pretty uh, draconian, and, and that will serve to, to realize that agenda, you know, um, which is a global agenda. It's not national. So people have got to stop, uh, you know, focusing on the street theater and the partisan sideshow to some extent. Uh, and um, keep an eye uh, cocked up at that higher level and, and, and 
just try to be a little more detached and less emotional. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well said. That, that's all we have uh, time for in this segment, Mark. And uh, I really appreciate you uh, spending time with us this weekend and uh, on the show. And uh, it was a great, uh, great discussion. And um, yeah, we uh, will give your, your book a shout out again. Fooled again, Mark Crispin Miller. Uh, and also, we put a link to your website, Mark, uh, up on the show page right now, so people can Great. go there and uh, give a shout out as well, Mark, of uh, any lists or anything that uh, people can uh, see your work or subscribe to. Well, if they if they join my list serve, which they can do at the website, they'll get the emails I send out. I try to send out daily, um, sometimes including my own little writings, but but mostly just pieces uh, from the global and and local and independent press that, that offer information that we don't often hear. I would also ask that they uh, sign my petition because it's a, a petition in defense of academic freedom and free speech, not just for me. It's prompted by my plight at NYU, but it's really a protest against censorship of all kinds going back decades, uh, you know, calling people conspiracy theorists or anti-vaxxers or anti-Semites or whatever slur may be used to shut down discussion, accusing them of hate speech, etc. cetera. Uh, we, we've got to be able to talk uh, freely and cordially about important issues. That's becoming increasingly uh, dangerous and, and difficult yeah. as you know, yeah. social media locks down and so on. So, yeah, they can, they can get my stuff through my uh, website and sign the petition. And otherwise, um, I don't know what to recommend because I don't write for any outlet on a regular basis. Uh, no, definitely. I, I recommend your your uh, email blast. Uh, it's uh, full of great, great stories, and you're you're catching things and highlighting things that uh, are sometimes slipping between the cracks. So uh, I, I highly recommend it to anybody if they want to go do that. Go click on Mark Crispin Miller's name on the show page at Twenty First Century Wire, and that'll take you through there as well. But um, thank you very much, Mark, and uh, hopefully we'll, thank you, we'll Bob. be able. Thanks, yeah. Mark. It's great to great to have you on. It was great to talk to both of you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Well, there he, there he goes, ladies and gentlemen, Mark Crispin Miller, and uh, we uh, we highly recommend you go check out his blog. And hopefully, we'll we'll have him on for another session uh, in the future. We're going to take a brief break and then wrap things up on the other side here with Basil Valentine during our post election post mortem of sorts. Uh, here at the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. Stick around. We'll be right back. <laughs> 